Hello, and welcome to The Order of Unmanageable Risks, a podcast about capitalism and anxiety. My name is Max Haven, and I am Canada Research Chair in Culture, Media, and Social Justice. And my name is Aris Komporoso Safanasiu, and I'm an Associate Professor of Sociology at University College London. On this show, we speak to people whose research or writing has inspired us to think differently about capitalism and society. We seek to go beyond medical approaches to mental health and to explore the ways in which an economic system both produces and relies on anxiety. Our podcast is produced by the Common Anxieties Research Project with the support of UCL's Institute of Advanced Studies and the Reimagining Value Action Lab. For more information, you can visit anxious.community. And we're very pleased uh, this episode to be joined by Mikkel Kraus of Franzen, who is the author of Going Nowhere Slow, The Aesthetics and Politics of Depression, which just came out from Zero Books a few months ago, uh, and literary critic at the Danish newspaper Politiken, and a postdoctoral fellow at the University of Copenhagen, where he works on topics of financialization and literature. Welcome, Mikkel. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. Uh, today we're going to be talking about an excellent article uh, which you published in the Los Angeles Review of Books uh, in December of last year, 2019, titled A Future with No Future, Depression, the Left, and the Politics of Mental Health, uh, which very closely uh, uh, matches the themes of this podcast and the, uh, and the research that Aris and I are doing. Um, and also uh, something that we hope to get to in this interview as well is that, that you also share our interest in the cultures of finance and financialization and the way that those contribute to the particular pathologies and psychopathologies of capitalism in our, in our uh, moment. Uh, so it's a, it's a real pleasure to have you here with us. Um, I wanted to jump in with, with I, one of the things I like so much about this article beyond the amazing insights that you provide is it's, 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 it's crystal clear in some ways. And you begin by uh, articulating the claim of the article with uh, really um, admirable directness. And I, I want to read that passage and then get you to speak about it a little. You say, the, the sort of central claim of the article is that depression makes manifest the contemporary subject's alienation in its most extreme and pathological form. As such, the psychopathology needs to be related to a world of capitalist realism, a term which you borrow from uh, the late Mark Fisher, uh, where there is no alternative, as Thatcher triumphantly declared, and the future seems frozen once and for all. The crisis embodied by depression thus becomes a symptom of a historical and capitalist crisis of futurity. It is a kind of structure of feeling, as Raymond Williams would say. Consequently, any cure to the problem of depression must take a collective political form. Instead of individualizing the problem of mental illness, it is imperative to start problematizing the individualization of mental illness. The call is for the left, for these specific reasons, to take seriously the question of illness and mental disorders. Dealing with depression and other forms of psychopathology is not only part of, but a condition of possibility for an emancipatory project today. Um, really, really well put, I think. Um, and I wanted to ask you to maybe unpack this a little in the context of our current uh, crisis of capitalism that emerged since the writing of these words and since the publication of your book, which is 
that now capitalism around the world is in various stages of lockdown. And this has had incredible effects on the mental health of many, many people who are now um, don't necessarily have the supports they once had, are facing a deeply uncertain future, uh, and being told that really, again, it's, it's their sort of responsibility to cope and manage. What do you make of this, um, this in light of the COVID-19 pandemic and what's going on now? Well, I mean, those are certainly difficult questions, right? And there's a lot to, to talk about right there. Um, what I think is obvious with the current crisis or um, crisis in plural, right? I mean, of capitalism is that, you know, it sort of produces various psychopathologies. Um, and I think, I mean, my main ambition to start with that um, in thinking about, but also writing about depression um, was kind of twofold. Um, on the one hand, it had to do with, um, with a critique of capitalism um, from this particular angle. Um, but then it was also based on some personal experiences, not only my own, but also, I mean, talking with so many people and friends, but also colleagues and students who were in various ways e expressing, you know, deteriorating state of minds and, you know, having multiple diagnoses or within recent years, just, you know, having a bipolar disorder or depressive, uh, depressive episode or uh, were becoming increasingly anxious. Um, and, and then I thought, okay, how do we connect those two dots or those two things? And then of course, I learned a lot from the late Mark Fisher, as you put it. Um, but I also learned quite a lot from reading uh, this more scientific, empirical phenomenological literature um, uh, going back all the way to Karl Jaspers, for instance, uh, who, who wrote quite brilliantly on the experience of people uh, who, for instance, are going through an episode of depression. And that, uh, and he, for one, uh, like Mike Fisher, was really good at talking about or framing the problem of depression in temporal terms. So speaking about depression as a kind of chronopathology as an illness in and of time. And then I thought, okay, that goes, you know, fairly well with uh, various brilliant analysis of uh, contemporary capitalism, um, which also seems to somehow do something with time. <laughs> let, let me put it that way. Yeah. And that sense of futurelessness or that kind of uh, lack of futurity that is, that is experienced on this, you know, broader historical level is for me intimately tied to the more personal experience in depression of not having a future or of losing the ability to imagine any kind of future, any kind of tomorrow. So that's sort of, you know, um, trying to connect those two uh, tracks um, were at the outset of my, you know, PhD dissertation, which then turned into this book. Um, in terms of the current crisis and the COVID-19, I think it's honestly difficult to say at this point what the both immediate but also long-term psychological effects are. 
I mean, um, because you read a lot about, you know, the current pandemic being also a mental health epidemic or pandemic, but like um, Nicholas Rose said in your last episode with him, there's also a danger in, you know, um, hyperboling or, you know, exaggerating uh, these tendencies because then you also, you know, run the risk of subscribing to the language of the diagnostic manuals and the field of psychiatry, uh, which is all too happy to state that, you know, more and more people are becoming depressed or more and more people are getting anxious and we need to treat those problems uh, within a very particular framework. So I think there's a lot still to think about and wait for um, and criticize, obviously, uh, with regards to COVID-19. Uh, I want to follow that up because you mentioned just a moment ago, and uh, we, we've talked in the past about how uh, I think both for, for you and for us, a lot of our motivation for studying this topic has to do with our experience with and our discussions with our students, uh, a young generation who, you know, as, w as with most um, generations under capitalist modernity have been told that they are the future, that they stand to inherit the future, that they need to invest in their own future in terms of obtaining an education and so that they can take their place in society. Um, and yet at the same time, the incredible rates of, uh, of mental ill health among students, uh, which has also been framed uh, as an epidemic uh, with yeah. all of the kind of baggage that, that comes with it. What, what's your sense uh, of your experience with students? And I wanted to ask you a, a slightly more particular question too, because I think you, you teach work and live in Denmark, which is often held up by uh, more uh, evidently neoliberal nations as this shining example of social democracy and a, a sort of functional cohesive society. Uh, and yet you, I, I believe if I'm not incorrect, you found that many of your students are also suffering these, these symptoms of the collapse of capitalist futurity. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that. Yeah, yeah. Um, let, I mean, I read uh, one of Mike Davis's brilliant analysis of COVID-19 where he asked the rather rhetorical question, I guess, um, if capitalism had become biologically unsustainable. But what I would want to say with regards to the students in particular is what they are starting to realize, or maybe they've realized for years, is that their current predicament and that capitalism in general has become biologically and psychologically unsustainable. And uh, a recent report came out in Denmark um, saying that 17% of the student population or the student body were experiencing and expressing various forms of mental disorders. And that's quite a large number, to be sure, right? Um, and I actually had this project uh, running parallel what uh, what you two were doing uh, before COVID-19, I guess, um, which uh, dealt with students and trying to do this, you know, pseudo-qualitative um, investigation with the students where I talked to eight different students uh, a couple of times this semester. Um, some of them had a uh, diagnosis of depression. Um, some of them did not, but had other um, illnesses. Um, 
And it was really striking for me to note just how deeply, how, how deep their pain was. I mean, um, but also, I think one of them said to me, you know, it is as if all of us students are going around feeling like shit, but we are still sort of, you know, walking around each in our own bubble, not sharing this pain, not sharing this condition that is obviously coming to common to so many of us. Um, and some of them were, you know, indebted and some of them were not. So they were also, I mean, within the same diagnosis, for instance, with two students, uh, you had immensely different social, socioeconomic uh, problems, for instance. Um, some of them had, you know, rich parents, their parents were academic, some of them did not. Um, so there were all these different factors, but there were also a lot of common ground. And, um, but what I think is one of the differences between, for instance, Denmark, uh, and the US and the UK, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that the activism among students in, in, in Denmark is pretty low, if not non-existent. And maybe that has to do with the so-called welfare system and the access to psychology and psychiatry and welfare benefits and, and all of that. Um, but I also think I had this idea that I wanted to gather these eight students and hopefully more um, and trying to do some workshops where we may where we might be able to collectivize some of these experience experiences but also trying to somehow and of course that sounds awful but trying to radicalize the students because they were pretty unradicalized uh, to be fair. So they were critical of, you know, the whole system and, you know, psychiatry and the diagnostic systems, but they were still unable to connect the dots that I talked about earlier. And they were unwilling to, you know, trying to mobilize or trying to transform uh, their individual diagnosis into a battleground. And I totally understand that if you are, you know, going through a major depressive disorder, then one of the obvious symptoms is that you are actually unable to do what is good for you. You are unable to act, you are unable to imagine anything. Um, but I still thought that that was pretty depressing, to be honest, um, that you had so many students who were going through difficult times or who, or who had clinical uh, depression, for instance, and, and yet they were still unable to escape that individual bubble. Mm -hmm. I, I don't know if that resonates yeah, uh, with your uh, experiences with students. It, it really does. It really does. And what, what I was wondering is, so you, you, you mentioned that although these were very intense experiences um, among students, they mostly seem to be dealing with them on an individual level. Um, and I wanted to ask you, I wanted to sort of link this, this observation with um, some, something that you've written in this article that Max mentioned, and uh, Max and I are also interested in, which is the role of financial capitalism uh, in this process, particularly the way finance intervenes in how distributions of risk and responsibility 
uh, are made uh, in, in our society. And, and I'm wondering here how these distributions uh, affect this generation we're talking about, students. And whether, my question to you is whether you think there are any spaces, any fora uh, in students' everyday lives where there are uh, practices uh, of coming together in some way. Uh, and I mean, outside of perhaps, you know, your own efforts to bring them together, do you think that there are, there is any sense of a collective we that is perhaps explored unconsciously or without, you know, not politically, with a political intent necessarily. Um, but do you think that there is, there are any fragments uh, of, of such a space? That's, that's difficult for me to say, but some of them mentioned that, I mean, one of them had HDHD. Isn't that the name also? I mean, a, yeah. Um, you know, ADHD, right? Yeah. ADHD, I think, yeah. ADHD, yeah. Attention and, deficit um, hyperactive disorder, yeah. Yeah. And that particular student had found this group beyond the university where um, she talked to a couple of others uh, with the same diagnosis. I don't think that was in any way an attempt to collectivize or politicize their uh, um, experiences. Um, I think that was an understandable way of, you know, sharing what they were going through, whether they were university students or not. But beyond that, I don't think there were any even fragmented sense of, okay, let's try to, to do something together. And some of them were actually really reluctant when I suggested to them in our in individual conversations that, okay, maybe we could try to do something collectively. Um, some of them felt, and, and I guess that's the way a lot of people um, are feeling uh, with diagnosis, that even though a diagnosis can be a comforting label, right, there's still a great amount of shame involved. Um, and it's difficult to transcend or overcome that shame. And then when you look at what the university is doing, because I mean, the University of Copenhagen is supposedly really taking this issue seriously, mainly because of course, they don't want students to get delayed. They want them, you know, um, going through the five years with no, yeah, extra time or extra, you know, cost or anything. Um, what they have done is, you know, they have created this, institutional infrastructure with a with a stress think tank and where they have come up with a different uh, set of solutions which include a m mindfulness app and other you know individual uh, stuff uh, so i i think it's obvious to me that if the students were to try to do something with this problem, it would have obviously to be, you know, outside of the university because there is no space left within it to deal with these problems in the way that I, for one, think that they should be dealt with. I want to I want to follow up on on something you mentioned there and just unpack it a little bit, which is the 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 strange double edged sword of 
the diagnosis. Um, and, you know, we, you were mentioning before our, our, our recent episode with Nicholas Rose, um, whose, whose book, Our Psychiatric Future, does a really great job of showing um, how, on the one hand, um, uh, as, as should be obvious to any reader of uh, people working in the tradition of Michel Foucault and, and also um, radical critics of psychiatry um, from the psychiatric survivor community or mental health user community, um, these diagnoses of mental illnesses are somewhat arbitrarily uh, confabulated by a medical establishment, often a medical establishment pressured by the need to either create what seem to be functional therapies to return, essentially to return people to some idea of working so that they can yeah. work, and also by the pressures of the uh, pharmaceutical industry. And yet the other side of the sword, of course, is that for so many people who are suffering in society uh, for all sorts of reasons and whose suffering manifests as what we term mental ill health, um, having a label to, um, to name that suffering and to uh, think through a set of procedures to remedy or at least treat that suffering is very appealing. Um, you, you have, you, I think you read it really well in your piece when you say, why does there seem to be so much comfort in psychiatric diagnoses? Because there is comfort in the diagnosis of depression. So that's why I feel bad. Depression, a chemical imbalance in the brain. In this way, the diagnosis provides momentary meaning to meaningless misery. The suffering gets a name at a cause, a lack of serotonin. And in the capitalist world as a whole, remain under, but, uh, but the, uh, sorry, but this cause has causes, which in the diagnostic system and in the capitalist world as a whole remain undiagnosed and untold. Um, and that, that seems to really resonate with what you're saying about, about the, the depoliticization of mental health and, and the way that it, its individualization militates against the sense of this, sh this sense of shared risk, shared fate that might otherwise emerge. Mm. Yeah, and I think maybe you have already discussed this previously on the podcast, but to me, the pivotal year is 1980, where this third um, edition uh, of DSM came out. Um, the, uh, the, the Diagnostic and, uh, yeah, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. um, um, which came out the third edition in 1980. Uh, and for the first time really um, eliminated all kind of, uh, all sorts of um, etiology, but also all kinds of contexts and causes, only talking instead of symptoms, uh, listing this set of symptoms that we also know today, right? And I mean, Alan Horwitz has written about the transition from anxiety to depression as the main, you know, psychopathological pathological paradigm um, in the modern age. And he locates it, this shift taking place uh, sometime during the 1970s. And he writes, I have the numbers here, that in 1975, the 18 million diagnosis of depression had for the first time surpassed the 13 million of diagnosis of anxiety. Um, whereas in the 50s and in the 60s, anxiety was really the predominant uh, way of framing uh, uh, suffering. Um, uh, so we have a really landslide there in 1980, where of course other important political neoliberal um, 
events took place um, as well. Uh, and since then, we haven't really had within this uh, psychiatric system and within the uh, psychiatric manuals, we haven't had any kind of contextualization uh, of depression, for instance, but also not of anxiety uh, or other illnesses. And I, and I think it's really important to push back against that tendency. Um, and it seems to me that the one, you know, kind of relief that this system can actually offer people is, you know, at the level of the label itself. And I mean, I have brilliant, clever friends who within the last couple of years have been diagnosed with, um, one of them with uh, major depression, the other one with bipolar disorder. And they are really relieved in an understandable way that now they, this suffering gets a name. And it's really difficult to talk about, uh, well, that's true. And it's good for you that you are now sort of recognized within the system and now some help is suddenly um, available in a way that it wasn't before, but still trying to think beyond the labels and the etiquette, which I mean, I oftentimes compare psychiatry to the field of, um, to the field of um, economics as these kind of I don't know, sciences which try to be very factual and very scientific, but still, I mean, when you, when you talk to um, psychiatrists who are able to do some sort of self-criticism, they are openly admitting that, of course, all these names, all these diagnoses, and with each manual, we get more and more diagnoses, you know, more and more illnesses. That is just a very approximate way and pragmatic way of going about things. Um, and of course, to me, I mean, having worked a bit on grief and mourning, it's been striking to me that in the latest edition, I think it came out a couple of years ago, and it is now being implemented in the Danish system, is the inclusion of grief within yeah. the whole catalog of mental disorders, where earlier, we had this bereavement exclusion clause, I guess it was called, where it's sort of said, the only con context that we will accept within psychiatry is the loss of a loved one, right? There you have kind of an understandable contextual uh, form of um, psychological distress that we can understand and accept. But now, I mean, um, grief is also being pathologized, but also individualized in a very um, normative way. Yeah, absolutely. And it, it, it brings up such interesting questions around, um, you know, and I think this ties into another whole area of critical theory in recent years about what what is mournable and what is grievable and who is mournable and who is grievable. So the, the example that comes to mind is, of course, the discourse that's circulated now on climate grief. And uh, it's a whole other interesting set of questions here. But I, I want to I sort of move us towards the end of your, your article and, and a discussion we want to make sure to have here, which is about, well, then, you know, sort of what, what is the alternative? What is the alternative way of framing these, this suffering that we're speaking of if we're going to have a, a really legitimate and, and important suspicion towards the sort of diagnostic turn? Um, 
and even a suspicion towards the forms of activism or mutual aid that circulate around diagnosis, as you were saying, groups that form around specific diagnoses, which can be important lifelines for people suffering, but ultimately sometimes reproduce the kind of depoliticization of mental illness. And so I want to I want to go to a quote from your uh, from your article where you're sort of parsing a, a set of recent work in theory uh, and in art about different forms of therapy that that are capable of naming the root causes of the quote unquote epidemic of mental ill health in capitalism. And you draw here again on the work of Mark Fisher on on the work of Franco Bifo Berardi, um, and so I'll I'll read this passage. What might collective and emancipatory therapy look like? We have an archive of feminist and artistic projects of care, self-care, and collective care, from the black feminist radical Audre Lorde to the French art uh, ensemble Claire Fontaine. We need a language that joins this archive to a movement and separates it from institutional psychiatry, neoliberal therapies, and the capitalist pursuit of profit. This is care that transcends the hospital, the clinic, the family, the state, the insurance company. This is care which, based on a politicized understanding of mental illness, moved beyond care in its commodified and capitalist form. When bodies take care of each other, when responsibility is redistributed, an individual collapses and transformed into collective intimacies, the future can be rebuilt in the name of a communist, shared and sustainable one. A, a very lovely passage, um, and, and I think really um, a challenge to us to think about what it would mean to actually provide care beyond the kind of um, uh, <laughs> sanctimonious and highly commercialized version of that word that has come to the fore in the, in the ongoing pandemic. Um, yeah, and I think we were talking too about different sorts of examples of this. Maybe, maybe you could go into a little bit of some of the places where you see this this new form of, shall we say, like to borrow Franco Berardi's uh, terminology, that kind of communization of care uh, happening, and and what what might lie ahead. Hmm. Well, I think I mean just to begin with, I would have liked to add um, if I were to rewrite that piece. Um, that this form of care should, of course, also transcend the art world uh, in a way, right? I mean, because that world is as bad in uh, in terms of commodifying uh, care as a concept and as a practice, right? Um, but we do have um, different versions that may, in this rather speculative passage, point towards some kind of, you know, exemplary examples, as it were. Um, and I think, I mean, in terms of, you know, activism, I still think that we find a lot of good examples of care uh, within, you know, climate activism, for instance, and the way that we have also seen in the COVID-19 that within certain circles that people are in fact able to take care of each other, take care of the sick, um, take care of the children, um, cook food, clean, all those kind of, you know, practices of care that were once, you know, mainly uh, reserved for women, of course. Um, I think we have something there. And I also think that there are some artists who are able to sketch out um, some practices that 
we can let ourselves inspire from. In a Danish context, an artist called um, Jakob Jaffersen, who has been in and out of the psychiatric hospitals um, several times, and he's been part of the Close the Camps movement, um, the kind of political but also artistic activism where people try to fight against this uh, brutal racist system of keeping immigrants and um, and asylum seekers imprisoned um, sometimes indefinitely um, or until they are deported forcefully on uh, airplanes uh, back to their home of um, back to the country of of region, as it's called. Um, so he has done a lot of important work within this activist tradition. But then uh, last year, when he came out of the hospital, he made his own hospital in a way. It's called the Hospital for Self-Medication, where he invited people in, um, people who were ill, but people who also were not ill, and, and, and invited them into his apartment slash hospital. Um, where he now created this space where people were actually able to share their experiences and to take care of each other. Um, and using that kind of therapy, as it were, as a mobilizing force for also doing activism. And that's the kind of dialectics that I also talk about in the article uh, that we've mentioned a, a couple of times. Uh, the logic being that. Um, that before we can go, for instance, to the camp of Schelsmark, this is one infamous camp in Denmark, before we can go to that camp and, you know, uh, do something there, do a demonstration or whatever, we need to be able to get out of bed. We need to be able to not, to in some way, uh, be on our way out of depression, for instance, because otherwise we are not able to do anything. We are just lying in bed, literally. Um, but then on the other hand, uh, doing that kind of activist work um, against the racist um, um, system of immigration can also function uh, as a kind of antidepressant, I would say. So we have this dialectical um, movement there, uh, which is, of course, complicated and not easy at all. But I still think that's a good example uh, of some kind of project that is actually trying to flesh out and practice what I, in some way, speculative preach, right? I mean, talking about therapies or practices of care beyond the hospital, beyond the institution of psychiatry, beyond the state. Um, and of course, there are various other um, examples. But then um, one last point would be that we also see the concept of care being thrown around a lot and sometimes not only commodified, but also used as a buzzword. Um, and I can only imagine um, the number of exhibitions in the art world, which also uh, would pick up this notion uh, trying to use that as a way of promoting an exhibition or a group of artists. Um, so I think we should still also be critical and self-critical when using that particular concept, because there is no magical solution, whether we're talking about depression or anxiety or talking about, you know, destroying capitalism. My, my partner, who's an artist and, and works on topics of care, but is, is quite sickened by the, the way it's been taken up in the art world. Uh, we have a term that we coined for this, uh, which is terrorism, 
uh, which is kind of the weaponization of a discourse of care in order to actually work against precisely that which it names in some way. Yeah. And I, I totally agree with you that the, and the art world is, as the art world so often is, uh, the magnitude of its crimes uh, may be minuscule in the whole sweep of capitalism, but they are certainly egregious and grating <laughs> because they are so they're so demonstrative of that kind of urge towards yeah. a commodification and the hype building. Yeah, absolutely. I think that that that's a very good place uh, to conclude our our discussion with you on this kind of speculative note and thinking about the radical imagination that that is being forged and that needs to be forged in order to break us out of both the, the personal experience of depression and mental ill health and also the collective uh, experience of depression and mental ill health, especially as the, um, the, the nostrums of, of uh, capital today announce that we should prepare ourselves for an economic depression as well as the uh, psychological depression to come after, after the pandemic ends, if the pandemic ends. Uh, yeah, thank you so much for joining us. And uh, we're looking forward to collaborating with you and, and to your future work on this and other topics as well. Thank you. No, I thought that uh, Mikkel's uh, arguments and his whole uh, view of these, these issues that we've been talking about is just, as you said in the beginning, so relevant and resonate so much with with our project um, as well as with the, the the last episode and our conversation with Nicholas Rose I was my thoughts on uh, on our conversation where I I was thinking specifically about this question of the diagnosis that uh, you also raised in during during the conversation and especially you know how it can be this double-edged uh, sword and um, on the one hand, there is a relief being offered, and on the other hand, uh, it comes with a shame. But also, what I wanted to add to that is that the diagnosis does something to the agent who offers it as well. So it's not just a an act. It's it's a kind of it's a two way process, right? And I was sort of thinking about the place of institutions such as the university in the distribution of such diagnoses. Um, so in other words, if there is a question there to be asked about how do we understand anxious students' uh, experiences of anxiety that is called that, that is called officially anxiety, how are we then to understand the uh, distributors of those labels or those that facilitate the process of those diagnoses? Um, and I think, you know, it, I was thinking that there is maybe an interesting political space there that runs both ways, right? So, and, you know, if we, and, I, and again, I like that Mikhail talked about a dialectical process. And I think, you know, there is an interesting dialectic there to be, unpicked um, in terms of how uh, this dynamic uh, relation between the people, the students in our case, in, and, and their universities. Um, and 
Yeah, it, it's, I mean, I, and I think it, because we need to take into account that those, those uh, other actors, because um, if we are to think of then ways of building a collectivity uh, or uh, making that collectivity empowering it, um, I think it's important to not consider students as operating in a vacuum you know they they there is a struggle that is not just within with themselves uh, within themselves and with each other there is there is there are other parties in that in that struggle so yeah this is this was a thought that i was i kind of had as um michael was making his points earlier mm -hmm. yeah i i i totally agree and one of the things i've really appreciated about this interview and talking with michael is is the perspective from the Danish university. Um, you know, it's so easy for us who are working and living in, in um, the sort of Anglophone North Atlantic, which is to say the UK, the US and Canada, to uh, imagine that the problems students face and the sources of their anxieties and depressions and ill health is due to the incredibly hyper-commodified and neoliberal austere and, and, and a sort of austere logic that has been imposed on the university. And, you know, high tuition fees, incredible levels of student debt, uh, the imperative to perform. And yet what I value so much about, about speaking about it with Mikkel, uh, in addition to his penetrating analysis, is um, this example that in, in, in Denmark, which is so often held up as the counterexample to the neo to neoliberal capitalism, this kind of kinder, gentler capitalism, we're also seeing the same the same conditions for young people, for students, and also seeing, interestingly, the same conditions of what you and I have sort of theorized as the anxious university, that the university is largely seeking to remedy or intervene or provide quote unquote care for students based on largely instrumental. Um, uh, motivations largely driven by metrics. So, as he mentioned in this art, in this um, interview, the Danish university is mostly concerned that students are completing their degrees on time, and their whole approach to mental health, which they champion as something that they're concerned about, is really driven by these. Even in a social welfare state like Denmark, highly financialized metrics of success, quote unquote success, of what that that means. Um, and so I think, again, it speaks precisely to what, you're, what you've pulled out here about the dialectic of the university and the student, the student in society, um, and how these, are, how these are working together in a form of anxiety, which isn't just psychopathology, it's actually an economic pathology. And the second point I wanted to draw, uh, which is connected, is his very interesting point, which he just dropped briefly in the, in the interview, that, um, you know, the, the psychiatric sciences are in some way twinned with the economic sciences. Economics. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I think that is such an interesting um, thing to think about. And it's interesting to think about where, where keywords for each of those um, sciences uh, overlap or correspond. So, for instance, diagnosis and treatment. Uh, and right now we have the whole capitalist intelligentsia around the world scrambling to reform their uh, paradigm and their epistemology in order to be able to make diagnoses of the current pandemic crisis in order that they can prescribe treatments that are exactly the same as the treatments that they were presenting before. So, you know, there's no, there's, there's very little mea culpa in the economic sciences mm -hmm. that in fact their 
their uh, approach, the mainstream economic approach, has actually led to the conditions of ill health, poor care that have let this pandemic be unleashed. Um, but Max, can I just yeah. add to this that there is also the element of prognosis. Mm -hmm, so there is yes. this relationship with the future because it's not just that there is a diagnosis and then a prescription, but, the, but both in economics and in, in psychopathology, there is an element of prognosis, which is to say uh, a, a prediction on the fate mm -hmm. of the diagnosed subject, yes. uh, which is... So I think that's really interesting because it's not merely that there is a label passed on from the psychiatrist onto the patient, but there is also a sort of shadow that is cast over their future. And similarly, economics operate like that. Models don't just predict, they yeah. also, sorry, they don't just diagnose or explain, they also predict and claim to uh, point to the future um, and do, and often is doomed futures for, for, for the many. So I think that's really Quite interesting. So. The, how these two disciplines uh, overlap in, the, in those ways. And it comes to the, the point that in both psychiatric medicine and economics, especially economics in a financialized age, we have the curious phenomenon of the diagnosis and prognosis producing the future that they aim to diagnose or predict. So in the field of financial economics, you have scholars like Donald McKenzie and others speaking about the performativity of financial models. They don't, you know, in the famous uh, title of his book, um, financial models are an engine and not a camera. They don't capture the reality. They actually create the future that they attempt to predict. And similarly, in psychiatric sciences, what's so interesting, uh, especially as concerns the success or failure of psychopharmaceuticals, is uh, many studies indicate that a huge degree of the statistical effectiveness of psychopharmaceutical drugs, especially those that treat depression, are attributable to the placebo effect, which is to say that when the doctor, an authoritative figure, tells the patient that this is an effective drug, the drug becomes effective even if the drug is replaced with a placebo pill, which is just a sugar pill and has no uh, psychoactive substance in it whatsoever. Although, just the side... An aside, we know that also sugar is a psychoactive substance. That is a digression. Um, it's interesting to think about the way that these sciences produce the world they aim to read, and in so doing, make, I think as Mikkel points out, uh, make that which is an arbitrary uh, effect of capitalism appear to us as a biological or scientific necessity. And I think that is... That, that whole worldview in some ways is, is in a moment of incredible crisis, which is, like all crises, a moment of danger and opportunity. And so I think on this note, this is probably a good time to uh, draw this to a close. This was the Order of Unmanageable Risks, a podcast about anxiety and capitalism. For more information on our guests and uh, links to our guests' work, you can head over to anxious.community. So this is goodbye from me. And see you next time.